the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. Delighted to say that uh, we're joined by a repeat visitor, Bob Sanguinetti, Chief Executive of the UK Chamber of Shipping. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good morning, Richard. So we're talking UK shipping against a backdrop of increasingly tense standoff between the UK and Iran. Security for UK shipping has never really been higher than uh, the last week or so uh, after the uh, arrest by British and Gibraltar authorities of the Grace One tanker. We've seen a a rhetorical battle diplomatically played out, but the Strait of Amutz is a dangerous place to be right now for UK shipping. What's your take in terms of the, you know, the risk assessment for, for what remains of UK's fleet out in the Strait right now? It's a time of, uh, of concern to UK ship owners, resulting from the events of uh, last week and, uh, and other events more recently. But as you'd expect, the shipping community is working very closely with Department for Transport in particular. Mm. And on the issuing of uh, the latest threat warning, um, ship owners are taking the precautions that you'd expect ship owners to take. Mm. What are those security measures? Because we've seen a response from the UK government. We already had HMS Montrose uh, patrolling in the region. HMS Duncan has been sent a little early and is on its way uh, to add a bit of security. And we've heard last night that uh, there's a, a, another vessel on its way. Obviously, this is a, uh, a, you know, a real issue um, as far as the UK government is concerned. And security is there in the background. But we're not seeing naval escorts uh, happen right now. What can, realistically speaking, uh, UK ship owners do to protect itself against Iranian uh, uh, Revolutionary Guard? We're not seeing uh, naval escorts, as as you put it. It's important to note that if uh, the Royal Navy frigate hadn't been in the right place at the right time last week, our conversation today would be Mm. totally different. So we welcome the presence of uh, the Royal Navy in the Gulf. Absolutely essential that our uh, ship owners and our seafarers feel that they um, are adequately protected by the Royal Navy. So uh, we welcome any moves that continues the provision of, uh, of, of that support. In terms of specific measures, as you'd expect, ship owners and, uh, and ship's crews will consider the, the route that they take in and out of the Gulf, will consider the speed that they travel at. Some might consider taking security advice, uh, and I would stress not necessarily or specifically armed guards on board ships because that is likely to inflame the situation rather than de-escalate the situation and of course remain in very close contact with the authorities through the Department of Transport mm. on the ground. But over and above all that I would encourage any move that de-escalates the situation uh, in the busy waters of the Straits of Hormuz. I would draw parallels between the Straits of Hormuz on the one hand and the Dover Straits in the English Channel on the other. Both are international straits, both are very, very busy. There is no reason why uh, ship owners and seafarers should not feel equally safe in both those environments. And that's what we would strongly urge the authorities to try and establish. And yet, if you look at the last couple of weeks, we've done you know analysis of uh, AIS signals you know, running through the, the strait. And relatively speaking, UK shipping is, is not a huge proportion of that traffic. But you know, there are, I think you estimated around sort of 30 vessels passing through on average, that has plummeted over the last couple of days. You know, I think the, the indication is that UK flag vessels do seem to be avoiding the region now. Do you think it is going to get to the stage that UK flag vessels just are not going to go through the strait until this is uh, blown over or, or de-escalated, as the uh, current parlance is 
We have not seen evidence of uh, a significant uh, drop in UK flagged activity in the Gulf or in, uh, in, in terms of transit through the Straits. And in fact, uh, over the last few days, I would stress that whilst the UK seafarer or the UK ship owner might feel that the, that the focus is somewhat on us rather than internationally, I would stress the fact that this is an international issue. We mustn't lose sight of the fact that two-thirds of the activity that UK flag vessels are engaged in involve delivery or transportation of cargoes to a third party. So this is an international issue. I don't think the threat differentiates between nationalities, although the focus might be slightly on on, on UK flag vessels. But the trade is very much international. Uh, We mustn't forget that 20% of the world's oil and 25% of the world's gas is transported through the Straits of Hormuz. So the implications on trade would be global. So what is needed in resolving this issue is an international solution, not a UK-specific solution. Completely understood. And I I, I take the point about trade. But let's be clear, the the rhetoric is politically very much aimed at the UK right now. We had... um, the leadership within Iran talking only last night about the fact that UK's actions against the Tanker Grace One will not go unanswered. So, I mean, there is a very definite focus on the UK here. There is a focus on the UK for the reasons you've uh, you've described, but there is the, the the US angle and the imposition or reimposition of uh, sanctions, uh, which are clearly having a, a significant impact on Iran. That mm. Iran will choose to respond in the way that uh, that it chooses, but the nature of shipping is by definition international Mm. and you cannot differentiate between uh, specifically a UK flag vessel um, which will not be carrying necessarily um, cargo destined for the UK uh, that might be chartered by a third party again. So it's it's a multinational dimension of shipping which we're all very familiar with. The threat will not necessarily differentiate between. No, understood. And it's, uh, I I think a lot of people are, are, are noting the, the wording from Jeremy Hunt, the British Foreign Secretary, in terms of trying to de-escalate this and point out, you know, in terms of the Grace One, they were uh, not acting upon the cargo, which was Iranian oil. They were acting on the destination of the ship, which was, as far as the UK and Gibraltar is concerned, Syria, which is beholden to uh, EU sanctions. Of course, his wording does rather uh, differentiate between the US approach to sanctions and the UK approach. But uh, again, we're back to... Uh, diplomacy that is um, to some extent outside of the control of shipping here but uh, you know the direction of travel is clear but um, and, until we see some proper you know de-escalation of threat to shipping I would say that the industry is still on high alert yes yeah the threat level has uh, has not changed and that's based on on the situation on the ground uh, but if I can remind you that uh, the situation had been rather tense before the uh, the standoff that took place uh, last week so uh, and the attacks that took place before then were not necessarily directed at uh, UK interests. It was much more international in flavour. Let's shift the focus a little bit more domestically. We've seen a, a flurry of uh, events over the last uh, seven days in anticipation of London International Shipping Week coming up in September. Some positive uh, noises coming out of uh, the, both the Department of Transport and the wider UK government in terms of supporting the UK. And uh, we are eagerly anticipating uh, some of the launches uh, around the 2050 vision and uh, strategy that has been laid down by the UK government. All very well received by the, uh, the UK um, shipping fraternity, such as it is. The big elephant in the room, of course, is the fact that while this has been going on, we've seen 
over 30% of the UK fleet evaporates due to Brexit. Now, that's an interesting juxtaposition to be uh, balancing in your position. You've got you know, good positive directional support from the government when it comes to 2050, but we're coming up to 2020 with a severely depleted UK fleet. The, the first point I'll make is regarding Brexit and the uncertainty of Brexit. And as we've said all along, uh, the uncertainty of Brexit doesn't help shipping in the way that it doesn't help wider industry. Uh, so we, we look forward to some clarity on the business environment that will follow Brexit. No one knows what that's going to look like, but uh, as an optimist, I see opportunities in there because I, I believe that as we go through the Brexit process, there will be uh, some more flexibility in the way that the UK can implement some of the legislation that at the moment it cannot do so because we're bound by the EU ties. So I believe that those opportunities uh, will be identified, will be seized upon and uh, acted upon to make the UK a more business-friendly and shipping-friendly environment than it might be today. Regarding the reduction in the size of the flag, yes, uh, some would say that there was uh, some inevitability about that because of uh, the way that uh, tonnage tax rules are, are drawn up, requiring beneficiaries to have a percentage of their the fleet flagged in the EU, and if the, if the UK flag is no longer considered to be an EU flag, then the result is pretty direct. Having said that, that's only one factor that attracts ship owners to a certain flag. More broadly, the quality of, uh, of service, the support, the expertise, and so on, that a flag, a registry can give a ship owner is fundamental in that decision-making process. And I believe that the UK flag has come on in leaps and bounds over recent years, and we're seeing uh, anecdotal and hard evidence that that is appreciated and acknowledged by the ship owners. So you put those two together, certainty from Brexit and the strength of the UK flag, and I'd like to think that we will see a reversal of, uh, of the trend in recent weeks. More broadly, you touched on Maritime 2050, the UK strategy. I think I'm probably right in saying that this is the only national maritime strategy that sets such a clear vision for 30 years hence than we've seen in the UK and, uh, and, and other, other um, similar countries. So I believe that the government and Department of Transport have very clearly set their vision. They've not done it in isolation and we feel that it reflects precisely where UK shipping needs to be in 30 years time. There are significant challenges, but I think the value of collaboration in government, in the private sector, the research and development community, academics and wider industry is very clearly understood and working very, very closely together already for 2050. I think there's also a much clearer understanding of the importance of shipping, not just in the Department of Transport, as you expect it to be, but more widely across government, probably in no small part as a result of Brexit, because Brexit has highlighted the importance of shipping to this island nation. So you put those factors together, you consider the opportunities that are out there, not just for UK shipping, but for UK PLC in terms of developing the technology that we know will be essential in order to achieve the targets that the shipping community has imposed itself for 2050. You've got a really powerful mix, and I think the direction of travel is already clearly set in Maritime 2050, and we look forward to working very closely with Department of Transport and government more widely to achieve what we know is achievable. You've mentioned a number of things there, you know, there, and, and 
let's be clear, there are positives here. The post-Brexit effect that, as you rightly point out, has highlighted what was an industry that, you know, to, by and large was, was going under the radar outside of the Department for Transport. And we've now got a the basis of some joined up thinking, an emboldened Department for Trade with a post-Brexit policy, environmental policy that is not just the beholden to uh, the uh, Department for Transport, and, you know, a clear strategy that prioritises both uh, environment, as you say, around the 2050 goals of decarbonisation, but also a heavy nod towards digitalisation. And uh, it's it's encouraging to see the government go so um, positively on that and, and introduce this cluster effect. A, a number of ship owners I've spoken to fully embrace and in, in anticipate good things down the line. Yet, that is a 30-year plan, it's aspirational, and it's being rolled out by a government that right now don't know who the transport minister is going to be over the next few weeks, don't know much in terms of the detail, are talking aspirationally a lot of what-ifs and we will get to and we will discuss. So, you know, there are details to be coloured in by people as yet not appointed to the role. The question, I guess, is, you know, will this survive the political goodwill of the current incumbents and, and really make it to 2050? Do you, do you have, you know, a, uh, a, you know a, a robust enough belief that the political will is going to remain uh, within government, whatever that government looks like post-Brexit? I believe that in publishing Maritime 2050, the government, not just Department of Transport, has clearly laid down its vision and its aspiration for 2050. So regardless of the changes that come about as a result of the future Prime Minister and and the wider impact that will have over the coming weeks, the Department of Transport has clearly set that direction of travel. I don't see why a new incumbent as uh, Transport Secretary would wish to change that because it, it, it seems to have, uh, or seems to enjoy, in fact, I would say it enjoys universal support across the, the community, uh, the shipping community, and also across government. So uh, little chance of, uh, of that changing. In terms of the commitment of delivery, that's a slightly different question. But again, most people now understand the importance of shipping to this country in a way that might not have been understood uh, a number of, uh, of, of years ago. So, so I feel confident, I draw confidence from, uh, from that fact. It is now more than just a strategy because it was published over six months ago. There's been a huge amount of work between government and between the shipping uh, industry, the Chamber of Shipping, Maritime UK, playing a, a pivotal role here in pulling together uh, the various sectors uh, across the maritime sector across the maritime community. We're seeing the establishment of research and innovation centres in Strathclyde. We're seeing the rolling out of uh, the cluster model to uh, Mersey, to Scotland and so on, pulling together the wider community of participants who, working together, will reinforce the strength of the, the shipping community in the UK, not just in London. So you put that together with an expectation that we will see certainty sometime before too long on Brexit and the development of an environment that is more conducive, more positive to towards generating business, generating jobs and so on, not just in shipping but across uh, across industry more widely. I would say that notwithstanding the challenges, the UK is in a good place to reinforce its position um, as a leading maritime nation. An optimistic view of certainty around Brexit and uh, and a 2050 strategy that we've rolled out. But uh, for now, uh, Bob Sangrinetti, thank you very much for joining the Lloyd's List podcast again. We look forward to uh, catching up with you during London Shipping Week, where 
with any luck, whoever is in charge of this country at that point will add some meat on the bones for the uh, maritime strategy. Mm -hmm.